0: Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETF's Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Alan, you're still on the mend, but thankfully getting better. Glad to be talking to you.
1: Yep, I'm on the mend. I uh, still have a ways to go, but um, I guess my unaided walking radius is now about 200 yards. So, But that's uh, more than two feet. So, um, yep, things are going well.
0: That's two touchdowns by my count. Uh, yeah, right.
1: <laughs> I need two touchdowns.
0: <laughs> Joining us for this edition is Randall O'Toole, an author and senior fellow at the Cato Institute. So glad you could join us, Randall.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here. We're going to be talking about some of my favorite topics.
0: Randall, a note that you wrote to Alan after he talked about buying a new Subaru Outback with its great technology, adaptive cruise control, and his concern that it could actually lead to more urban sprawl prompted Alan to invite you to join us here. So I'll let you get into what what that response was.
2: Well, first... uh, I have had a a Subaru Outback since 2015 that has adaptive cruise control and I'm totally spoiled by it. I I do not like to drive a car that doesn't have adaptive cruise control anymore. It makes it a lot easier to drive and it makes it a lot easier for the driver to concentrate on things other than speed. Uh, The Subaru, of course, has uh, one of the best uh, automated braking systems in, in the industry. Uh, It's been proven that if if you have an obstacle ahead of you and you're going 40 miles an hour, the uh, Subaru will stop. Whereas most other cars, even cars with automated braking, uh, you have to be going less than 30 miles an hour for the car to successfully stop and completely avoid hitting the object. So Subaru's got a great technology. Uh, They're great to drive. Uh, I actually have another car with adaptive cruise control, a Chrysler Pacifica. Uh, which is a plug-in hybrid, and, and its system works pretty well, too. Uh, I wouldn't trust it as much as uh, the Subaru for uh, emergency braking, but uh, it uses a radar system, and the Subaru uses a, a, an optical system. I'd kind of like to know how well those systems work in traffic, uh, because there's been studies show that, uh, that if you have enough cars with adaptive cruise control and traffic, you can significantly reduce the amount of congestion. Uh, If everybody were driving a a Subaru with their system of adaptive cruise control, a typical freeway lane can move about 2,000 vehicles an hour. But if all the cars had Subaru-style adaptive cruise control, I think you could get that up to 2,600 or 2,800 vehicles an hour without encountering any congestion. So the question is, does the optical system work as well as the radar systems that Chrysler and other companies have? Uh, in relieving congestion? And I think that's an important question to consider because if it really can reduce congestion, it uh, might give people an extra incentive to buy the system that does the best at relieving congestion.
1: Yeah, uh, Randall, you you bring up some very good points Uh, uh, with respect to adaptive cruise control. uh, I use it also all the time. And uh, it it really does... uh, Uh, Let you focus on what's around you as opposed to looking down and saying well, how fast am I going and am I going to get a ticket now? I tend to set mine at nine miles over. I'm not You know, I don't want to suggest that others should set it at that. I haven't gotten a ticket in a very long time. And it is certainly much more comforting to to drive that and not have to worry about uh, whether or not uh, the police is going to get you. Here in Princeton, they watch it pretty closely. I guess they give you nine. uh, But, uh, you know, whatever, it it just does make uh, driving a lot uh, easier and, and a lot more relaxing and, and a lot safer. The other comment is with respect to uh, all cars having it and all cars using it, it continues to amaze me that I have yet to see a sign along any roadway that has been put up by the local Department of Transportation, or whatever, that suggests that you should even use cruise control. It it amazes me that the public sector hasn't seen stupid or intelligent cruise control as real ways to harmonize traffic, uh, be more efficient, and also, uh, you know, probably uh, uh, reduce crashes. Uh, I don't know, Randall, if you, out there in Oregon or anywhere else, have you ever seen a sign saying, use your cruise control if you have it? Uh, I haven't.
2: No, I haven't. And and sadly, Oregon is one of the states where uh, transportation <laughs> planners believe that more congestion is better because our automobiles are evil. And if we just increase congestion enough, it'll get people out of their cars. So they don't really want to do anything that'll relieve congestion. Uh, but uh, if people who aren't familiar with adaptive cruise control may not be aware that there's a huge difference between it and regular cruise control. If you set your regular cruise controls at, say, 60 miles an hour and you go down a hill, your car might speed up to 65 or 70 or 75 miles an hour just because of gravity with adaptive cruise control it no matter whether you're going up a hill or down a hill whatever it keeps you within a mile or at most 2 miles of the of the speed you set uh, and the Subarus have an uh, extra advantage that I'm not sure all cars with adaptive cruise control have if you set your speed for 60 and then you go around a really sharp corner it will figure out you're going too fast around that corner it'll slow you down automatically so that you don't have a a possibility of uh, wiping out. So adaptive cruise control is important for safety, uh, and it's important for uh, relieving congestion, and it's important just from easing the the role of the driver and making it easier for them. Now, there are other things that cars have, like uh, lane centering and lane keeping, which are two different things. Adaptive cruise control started out in the very high-end cars, like a Mercedes S-Class. Today, every Subaru Outback comes with adaptive cruise control, and they started around, what, $24,000. So uh, it's come down well into the uh, $20,000, and there are even some cars in the, in the $10,000 to $20,000 range that have adaptive cruise control. Lane keeping and lane centering are different. Lane keeping means that if, if your car detects that you get too close to a painted stripe, it'll nudge you back towards the, the center of the road. And if you stop, take your hands off the wheel, what you'll end up doing is weaving back and forth between the stripes. And if a stripe disappears, then you might just go off the road. Uh, lane centering is different. Lane centering, the vehicle calculates the center of the lane and then keeps you on that center so far lane centering is only in the expensive cars and the cars like the subarus only have lane keeping i think that's they're worried about liability problems and they're worried that if they put it on cheap cars and somebody has an accident they're going to end up with a serious loss on their hands and the money they made from those cheap cars won't pay for the lawsuits so so far we don't have a good lane centering uh, system on inexpensive cars but the adaptive cruise control does make a huge difference and uh, i i'll never buy a car I'll, i won't hopefully hopefully i'll never have to drive a car that doesn't have it again
0: Subaru calls it eyesight is that that's the name of its technology
2: eyesight is their system because it's an optical system they have two different cameras and they use parallax to figure out uh how quickly you're approaching something and to uh see things in uh uh, stereo, uh, and that's different from the radar systems, which don't have a, a stereo capability, and, and they'll, a radar system will need some alternative system for lane keeping or lane centering because the radar isn't going to be able to detect the stripes as well as the optical system.
1: You know, for, for those that aren't familiar, the key uh, advance when, we, when we've gone to, uh, to adaptive or what I call intelligent cruise control is that instead of just uh, controlling the throttle, which is what the conventional or stupid cruise control does, it, it, it controls both the throttle and the brake. So as uh, Randall mentioned, you're going down a steep hill. It'll keep you from, acceler- uh, from accelerating uh, beyond your desired speed because in, in, instead of just turning off uh, the throttle, which would uh, be what the case would be in, in conventional uh, cruise control, it'll actually apply the brakes uh, to keep you at your speed, so that that's that was the real advance. And uh, and as Randall mentioned, uh, this this automated uh, technology is is finding its way into essentially uh, every new car that's on the market, and th- that is really good. And people now need to uh, get adjusted to it, learn it. And as uh, Randall and I have found, my goodness, it just makes driving uh, a lot more pleasant.
0: And Randall, you also brought up uh, or had a response to the issue that Alan had raised about this technology encouraging urban sprawl.
2: Yes, and it, it's funny. I've been working on urban sprawl for a long time, and I, I encountered a, uh, a quote from somebody who's writing about Russia, and he said that Russians uh, say that Americans don't have real problems, so they have to make them up. <laughs> and I found very good first world problem, right? <laughs> right, right. What I found is that urban sprawl is one of those made up problems. What's the wrong? What's wrong with letting people find housing on an urban periphery where they can own a little land and have a play yard for their children and pets or a place to garden or whatever? Uh, well, supposedly, what's wrong is we're going to pave over the country. Well, all urban areas in the country only cover 3% of the country, so we're not going to pave it over. Uh, Supposedly, it leads to traffic congestion, but actually, it's the escape from traffic congestion. Both jobs and residents are moving to the suburbs. They're escaping the congestion at the inner cities. Uh, They say it leads people to drive too much. It leads people to waste too much energy. Uh, But actually, sitting in traffic in dense cities in the cities that have tried to contain sprawl, they've made themselves denser and made themselves more congested, that wastes a lot of energy too. So I think urban sprawl is the remedy to problems. Uh, in fact, in, in a quote that I think uh, uh, really uh, uh, raised Alan's attention, I said that urban, another name for urban sprawl is affordable housing. If you look at the cities in the country like San Francisco and Honolulu and Seattle, that have tried to contain urban sprawl, they're also the ones where housing prices have just shot out of sight and become unaffordable for most people in those urban areas. Uh, Whereas cities that haven't tried to contain urban sprawl and are still growing very fast, like Houston and Dallas and Atlanta and Charlotte and uh, many other fast growing cities, they have very affordable housing because home builders can keep up with just about any demand, provided government isn't getting in their way. So uh, yeah. I like urban sprawl, and I see if if driverless cars allow people to escape from the cities that have deliberately made themselves congested and expensive. Uh, that's a good thing, you know. You can work in Oakland or San Francisco, but live in Modesto or even further, and just take your driverless car to work and work and read or whatever on your way to work. And you won't feel like you're wasting your time.
1: Well, yes, uh, Randall, I really liked uh, your affordable housing comment. And then in fact, I think that is a, a very, very important one. I'd even go farther. I mean, I, I'm beginning to question, uh, why do you want to assemble a, um, uh, Three thousand people in some skyscraper in, in even in Manhattan. I mean, really, uh, the communications that everybody has. What do you have? Some sort of assembly line, like a, a Ford assembly line, that you have to line one person up against the uh, up against the the other. Uh, most of those people who work in those office buildings. Guess what? They're on they're on their tubes all day long. And if they're on their tubes all day long why aren't they just on their tubes um, in some remote uh, work location that's near their home or even in their home and 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 doing their work that way i mean how how important is uh, the water cooler um um uh, in terms of of assembling all these people um i i really i really have begun questioning some of these smart cities concepts of you know, um, of all these glass towers uh, rising um, uh, out of the out of the ground, I mean, I don't want to live in a glass tower. I don't want to work in a glass tower, um, uh, and I think um, you know maybe a, a lot of other people are the same way. I I just I just really question. Uh, the whole concept of uh, sticking people living in living glass towers and and working glass towers. Um, so I have enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed your comments and and I, I you know I just uh, I'm just out there to discuss it.
2: Well, you know, the uh, writer Joel Garreau, uh, author of Edge City, said that he thinks that urban planners all wished that they lived in Paris in the 1920s. Uh, Paris was a very dense community, it's lost, the inner Paris has lost something like two-thirds of its population since the 1920s, so it's not as dense as it used to be, but supposedly that was the ideal lifestyle, and urban planners want to bring that back. Uh, why did that lifestyle change, though, we have to ask, and the answer, you actually brought up the answer in your, uh, in your comments, and that is Henry Ford's factories, uh, before Henry Ford factories were located in downtowns and they were very had very high numbers of people uh, there might be 5,000 people working on a single city block most of them couldn't afford a streetcar so they had to walk to work so that means they lived in very high density neighborhoods within walking distance of the very high density factories well then in 1913 Henry Ford developed the moving assembly line and that required a lot of land Henry Ford's Uh, Rouge River factory was bigger than every downtown in America, except for New York. Uh, So you couldn't fit those factories downtown. More people adopted moving assembly lines. Jobs moved away from the downtowns out into the suburbs where land was cheap. The jobs actually moved to the suburbs before the people did. And then people followed and they found out, hey, now I can afford a car now I can afford a house on a piece of land in the suburbs. I don't have to live eight people to a room in some high-density tenement in downtown Manhattan. And that was produced huge benefits for everybody. We had uh, healthier cities, we had uh, safer cities, and we had uh, a lot more fun cities because you uh, were able to afford a house that was big enough for your family instead of living one family per room, as many people did in the 1890s. So the low densities really provided huge benefits. That doesn't mean everybody always wants to live in low densities, particularly young people like to live in higher densities uh, until they get married and have kids. And we have plenty of high density areas for them to live in. Do we need high densities to make places like New York and Chicago and San Francisco go? Probably not. I think a lot of that is left over from uh, the 19th century, and it just hasn't thinned out all that much. There's an economist at Harvard named Edward Glazer who wrote a book called The Triumph of the City in which he said there's still important benefits to be gained from eye-to-eye contact. You don't get those benefits communicating with people over a podcast or even over a uh, FaceTime or, or Skype Uh And yet I think those benefits are a lot smaller than than he thought they were. And you can tell uh, he himself grew up in a high rise in Manhattan, but he's raising his family in an extremely low density community in rural Massachusetts. So he himself doesn't need those uh, density benefits. And I don't like it when urban planners try to impose those kinds of things on people as they're doing, particularly on the West Coast but also in many East Coast areas.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'd like to see them instead of focusing on, uh, you can focus somewhat on smart cities, but I think smart communities and smart villages, uh, my goodness, uh, they should focus on that. And, and, um, uh, and, and i guess out of all this randall we're going to get a lot of hate mail but uh, (laughs) but anyway i think at least we're we're putting it out there uh to to think think about i mean you know and and sort of going around through uh through china and so on and looking at all the the high rises that are being built and and so on, I mean yes, if you have 1.4 billion people, uh, you have to put them someplace. But you have to put all 1.4 billion in cities. Maybe maybe 700 million is is enough, and 700 million should still be in villages and, and smart communities and smart villages. And I think you know, in some sense, the same thing here is is instead of this these smart cities concepts. Uh, which it's it's really interesting when you when you see the 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 visuals that are made by by the smart cities folks. You never see any people. You you wonder where the people are, and you certainly never see any any low income people. I mean, where did they go, and, and and where where is their affordable housing, and and how are they living? And so um, anyway, um, again, um, we're going to generate a lot of hate mail.
0: Right. <laughs> Alan, my, my concern is that if we get rid of the high-rises, what happens to your ride-sharing elevator analogy? <laughs>
1: well, I, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but uh, we still have. I mean, you, there's still ride-sharing opportunities and all the all the work that I've done with my students, it, it, the, the, the the communities and so on, you know, there, there are ride-sharing opportunities. Why? Because, you know, some functions even in villages tend to take place at about the same time. <laughs> to the same place. You know, kids go to a school. The school starts at a certain time. The school uh, lets out at a certain time. People go to work. People go to work at about the same time. Uh, people have lunch at about and dinner at about the same time and go to, you know, whatever the, the number of, of of places. And, and so there are ride sharing opportunities. And so a, a mobility as a service uh, that is really demand responsive uh, can lead to, to, to ride sharing and, and a quality of life and, and mobility that is equivalent to you owning your own car. Uh, uh, but, and then, then maybe instead of owning four or five of them, you'll only own one or maybe just your block will have one that you share. Otherwise, you use mobility as a service, shared ride, and, and get all the various opportunities and v- advantages that maybe it can bring in terms of energy efficiency utilization uh, and pollution and all the other things, and, and maybe even reduce congestion. So uh, to me, those have always been the the opportunities.
2: Well, I I think uh, you're right that there are going to be great opportunities. Uh, I personally estimate that about half of the people are still going to own their own cars and probably more, maybe more than half because uh, ride sharing isn't, for example, I live in a community of 250 people. Uh, There just isn't enough people here for traveling in the same direction for ride sharing to make any sense out here and we're miles away from any place else. So rural people aren't going to rely on ride sharing, and even a lot of urban people are going to figure out, you know, if you own your own car, each trip you take, you end up paying the marginal cost of that trip. If you ride share, you have to pay the average cost of the trip, and the average cost is much greater than the marginal cost for uh, an automobile. And a lot of people are going to think, I can beat the system by owning my own car. I'm going to drive more than most people. So I'll beat the system. Uh, Anybody who drives more than the average person will end up benefiting from owning their own car rather than ride sharing.
1: Yeah, I I agree. People still own their own cars. People still have horses. Uh, so uh, and, and on horses and, and even in Pennsylvania, they still use them for mobility in in, in uh, the, the various Amish communities. So yes, that, that will continue and how far it goes. Uh, but um, you know uh, one doesn't have to necessarily ride share. Uh, certainly these vehicles are available to take you by yourself. Uh, the isu- issue is 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 somebody yeah. going to find this as a viable business? uh to uh to provide returns to their shareholders and provide mobility that people say hey instead of doing it myself i'm going to use this and um and and justify it one way or another or or whatever and go out there and compete i think that's the opportunity that exists here and we just have to see what the marketplace ends up ends up producing in terms of uh, in terms of the winners and losers but uh, the The opportunity for the automation is it allows you to take the the labor cost out of it, which is really what we've done for ourselves when we when we enslave ourselves uh, to provide that that labor uh, cost free mobility to ourselves. Uh, this is now the an opportunity to, to maybe provide that for everyone. And um, this, of course, assumes that the technology to do this, its cost goes to zero, which, you know, that's certainly the, the software costs go to zero. And the hardware costs uh, in volume, uh, the way Moore's laws has worked, uh, that's going to go to zero, too. So um, anyway, it's, it's interesting to see the opportunity now uh, for that kind of uh, mobility,
2: maybe. Here's an interesting conundrum for you. Because of ride sharing, the transit industry is declining. They've lost something like 15% of their riders in the last few years. And, sure. and in many yep. cities, it's been much more than that. Right. At the same time, the transit industry has a completely different problem. They can't find enough people to drive their buses. Uh, This is a huge problem. They're actually having to cut routes in Denver because they can't find enough drivers Uh, and they're having to reduce frequencies because they can't find enough drivers. And wait a minute, their main competition is drivers. How are they having a shortage of drivers when they're losing business to other drivers? So I don't know what the answer to that is, but something's awful fishy is going on here, which it always is in an industry that's as heavily subsidized as urban transit. Yeah, and, that, and they've gotten themselves into that corner. I, I, I'm sort of a,
1: a believer that, uh, that with, uh, with automation, that in fact, uh, all this mobility can be provided by an operator, uh, Provided affordably and allow that operator to do it, um, um, having a return uh, to to the investment community and 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 profitability. There, there's no reason why it can't be, um, uh, and um, and uh, we'll just wait and see.
0: Well, this is a good time to remind our listeners about our sponsor this week: the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF symbol m-o-t-o for more information head to motoetf.com. com. investing in, in etfs we should add it, it can be a good way to spread risk and since we're focused on transportation and mobility and so is this investing opportunity we're happy to have motoetf.com com on board with us alan some other topics in this week's newsletter uh, first of all, the coming California DMV disengagements report prompted the head of GM's crews to write an interesting report in Medium.
1: Yes, and I think Carl made some very good comments. And as I uh, point out in the in the um, in the smart driving car e-letter, um, I think everybody should should look at those seriously. Um, again, uh, having uh, just one simplistic measure uh, to then uh, be the, 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 um, the bellwether for safety and, and, and market uh, availability is, is uh, just uh, too naive. Uh, details matter. And in fact, uh, the objective of those doing tests also matter. If one has an entity that one's trying to sell it to somebody, uh, then of course, uh, you know, they're going to run their tests in one way. If somebody is out there basically betting the ranch Uh, that they can do it safely and reliably, uh, and so on, Uh, they're going to be extremely careful. And in fact, um, disengagements will probably be very high because what are they trying to do? They're trying to stress test the system. They're trying to get the darn thing to disengage. They're trying to see how how far they can go, Uh, where the edge of the birdcage is, so when they define their operational design domain where they're going to offer this service and in what conditions they can make sure that they're within uh, an envelope in which they can do it safely reliably and um, and hopefully that encompasses enough customers uh, to make it a going concern and a viable um, um, uh, uh, contributor to uh, improving the quality of life in the community, as well as uh, returning a profit uh, uh, to the investors of, the, of that entity. So, uh, yes, so that has to be taken very, very uh, uh, carefully. Disengagements and details really matter.
0: Yeah, you, know, you can't learn from mistakes if you're not making any or taking risks, right?
1: Well, I think yes, and and that's what tests are all about. Tests aren't about yeah, just patting yourself on the back. Okay, I, I can go around the circle that I've been around, uh, you know, fifty thousand times, and I can do it fifty thousand and one. You know, how much farther can I get? And and so and to define where it is that I can really do it repeatedly and safely, and then I can offer the service. If these systems aren't safe they will never see the light of day. okay? As we've seen with the with the uh, Boeing 737 max and so on, it's going to be at least summer before those things are back out. after you know fixing, uh, the safety issues associated with that. Uh, nobody's going to put up with these systems if they're not safe. So therefore, yes, uh, one has to define it. Uh, one controls the, these vehicles. So it's easy to to define, uh, to keep them within an operational design domain under the right conditions, under the geographies where um, uh, everybody believes and then so on. And they, they've shown to be Re- reliably safe and uh, and so go and operate as the systems improve expand that uh, bring it to more people the thought that it's going to be everywhere and any I can't drive everywhere and every anywhere you know the TV commercials suggest that I I can go climb the the, the Great wall or drive in, <laughs> in some riverbed or in snow that is who knows how deep it you know I see the commercials and oh yeah I can do that Bull, the governor of New Jersey, you know, there's a thread of snow here. said, stay home. You know, don't go out here. Uh, And, you know, people thinking they can go in fog. Are you are you joking? Uh, Come on. Um, Anyway, whatever.
0: Cruise also (laughs) this week, uh, we should point out, unveiled a futuristic electric vehicle. Uh, They're calling it the Cruise Origin. Uh, This is a a concept vehicle, but uh, got some attention. Yeah, and this
1: is basically their driverless vehicle that that they're uh, that they've put out there, and what I like about it is is it's not a vehicle that's focused on the one percenters; it's a vehicle that's really focused on on providing mobility as a service um, and in a shared ride. um, opportunity so it really is a, a, a fleet vehicle called a transit vehicle that basically can take people from where they are to where they want to go and if somebody else wants to go is going to the same place can join you and and so uh i really like uh, that concept vehicle as opposed to let's say the concept vehicles that came out of daimler a few years ago at ces and so on that are you know uh geez another place for me to sip my 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 champagne and whatever i you know i, I don't see these things in in anywhere in the near future uh being sold to individuals not the driverless piece i think uh, you know it requires too much uh supporting uh entourage uh you have to be way too responsible uh to put these things out on on a public road without anybody in it it requires a responsible entity uh, it requires some amount of scale uh to be able to do it and and to to do it uh, uh both reliably and responsibly most important not that individuals are irresponsible, but, you know, every once in a while.
0: And we're hoping to have crews join us uh, for a discussion in the not too distant future. Hopefully.
1: Yeah, you know, it's tough for them because, of course, they have to be very careful as to what they say publicly. And so, um, you know, I, I'm i a totally irresponsible person. So I just <laughs> sit here and whatever, pontificate or <laughs> sorry, Randall. <laughs>
2: I've been called the same.
0: Uh, (laughs) Alan, Alan, you're also highlighting a report in the newsletter on the scooter sharing service Revel, which is facing a host of injury related lawsuits after launching in, in Brooklyn and Queens.
1: Yeah, you know, in in the scooter area also, you know, the number um, people just really aren't trained to do it. You know, it might be okay for, you know, the scooters for an 18-year-old and so on, but I don't know. Um, Certainly, I couldn't hop on one right now. Um, um, and, and, And the... The the scooters, the, the, at least when you go to Bermuda and you run a scooter, at least the guy that's running you the scooter makes you drive down this 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 alley and watches you and and makes sure that you you can operate the darn thing. Um, there is essentially I don't know what kind of oversight they're putting on that, and guess what? They must know what what this situation they're fail, they're 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 facing because they know. Every time one of these things crashes, they know who was on that. And they also have a history on what that person's rented from them before. So they know, uh, you know, the time to first crash of each person that crashes. I would love to see what that, that, that distribution looks like. And, and how long it takes you know uh, somebody crashes. Has it been uh, that they've rented uh, these vehicles for you know 10,000 hours? Or is it that they're in basically their first hour of renting these things? Um, uh, They have the data on that. Uh, I guess in one of these these, uh, lawsuits, if they're not settled out of court, uh, the information will come out in discovery. I hope we can find it and
0: publish it, Fred. Well, Tesla, meanwhile, is defending itself against uh, some allegations of unintended accelerations, as they put it. Well,
1: the reason why I put that one out there is because... You know, a lot of these lot. I don't know if the, if a lot is the the sum of these videos that are put out there are doctored. Or, I mean, they're set up, uh, and and uh, you know, for who knows what reason, somebody wants to be cute and get 15 seconds of fame or or maybe as as is suggested with these that it's people who who basically shorted uh, tesla you know at 283 and what's it selling now for 583 i mean you know, <laughs> whoa um I, I don't know but uh but yeah one has to be careful with some of these things as to you know is it real news or is it fake news is it set up or is it is it real and um and i just thought i'd throw this one out there in which there's indication that again it's uh it's a setup
0: yeah and as you pointed out the real acceleration is in tesla's stock price
1: yeah <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> Jesus, i mean it's a good thing i don't know how to short because <laughs> i might have shorted at 283 uh, but <laughs> anyway well,
0: the la times had a story about consumers ignoring electric vehicles that aren't named Tesla
1: well I guess what I pointed out and 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 my comment on that is is that if you look at how these vehicles are sold um, you know it's competition that's the problem Um, uh, if if you go to Tesla you only see electric vehicles if you go to GM you see both electric and gas vehicles and so you know GM is is competing uh, has gasoline vehicles competing with the uh, with the electric vehicles in the showroom and then you look at the poor salesperson out there who's trying to all they're interested in is selling you the car as fast as you can and selling the next one. And, and uh, giving the, the list of all the reasons why uh, some people don't want uh, an, an electric vehicle, range anxiety being one of them, um, uh, all of a sudden, guess what's easier for the salesperson to sell? The gas vehicle. So to me, it's not surprising that if you walk into a showroom, you're going to walk out with a gas vehicle. Um, But yet, if you go online to go get a Tesla, uh, the only thing you can buy is is an electric vehicle. So, um, you know, it may be as as simple a reason as that, that Tesla is is just killing it these days. Uh, It may also be that, hell, it's a damn good car man, it's um, uh, an autopilot uh, seems to really work on it. And so, um, uh, and Elon's, um, I don't know, whatever. And and it's part of the current bubble.
0: Randall, have you had a chance to do much uh, with a Tesla?
2: No, I haven't. Uh, I'd be interested in testing the autopilot. But I think uh, they might get a run for their money when the Ford Mustang Mach-E comes out. Uh, That really seems, unlike most of the other uh, electric cars that Nissan and Chevy and so on have put out, the Mach-E seems to be aimed straight at Tesla to be a Tesla killer. And it'll be interesting to see if they actually get it out on time. Ford has a habit of being late with their uh, new cars that they announced, but if they get it out on time, they might be able to carve out a significant chunk, chunk of Tesla's market
0: interesting and the rumors are that tesla is going to have its uh model y kind of like a crossover out perhaps earlier than it had it had anticipated which would really be a switch
1: yeah and so there, there's a lot happening in that uh but um i guess in a couple of days uh, we uh, hear uh the 20, 2019 results out of tesla i don't think they're completely out yet and um um We'll wait and see. But, uh, uh, boy, um, I guess you have to take your hat off in terms of what, uh, what Elon's accomplished there.
0: <clears throat> well, there's a Congressional Research Service report out, uh, Alan, titled Issues in Autonomous Vehicle Testing and Deployment that got your attention in the newsletter.
1: Yeah, and and you know, still uh, in terms of what's happening in Washington, you know, certainly the the interest is safety, and absolutely that's the, that's the reason why you have the public sector oversight in all this is, is to ensure safety. Uh, but you know, they they really don't focus on mobility, and I I keep I keep thinking, and maybe you know, I'm I'm the only one out there that. Uh, that um, if if we really do achieve um, uh, and are able to make the software and the hardware uh, such that um, it's basically as good a driver as as uh, we are, uh, that that in fact uh, this these things become mobility machines, that uh, that a, a, an operator out there. Uh, can put out and and provide mobility to all of us that we're very happy and and, and pleased to pay for, and um, and um, uh, and allows that person to, to do it in a way that uh, uh, that they have a nice return to their their investors and the, and there's a profit associated with it, as opposed to what we currently have uh, in the. Uh, in the uh, in the transit market in which uh, because of the the labor issues and so on and, and aspects it has to be a big vehicle it can only serve uh, very limited times and and services along a, along a basically a a string of of, of stops and basically um, doesn't serve a doesn't serve a much of a market and so nationwide it has uh, you know, four uh, percent uh, market share of of trips, and uh, out of that four percent, half of them are taking place in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut metropolitan area. You know, it's 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 in a sense irrelevant everywhere else. And and um, and so uh, uh, why? Because uh, because of the fundamental economics level of service uh, combination that they offer, um, uh, uh, personally owned vehicle just kicks its butt day in day out. Uh, but maybe with uh, with the opportunity to. To have a fleet of these mobility machines, as I call them, that possibly could be serving every day 50 trips a, d- a day, um, uh, person trips a day, uh, actually somebody can uh, have a very healthy uh, lemonade stand uh, business um, and, um, and be a viable contributor to, uh, to the quality of life of communities.
0: ARS Technica has a report on a LiDAR company that you're highlighting in the newsletter. It's, it's called Sense, and it's using 11,000 lasers, which is, I don't know how many times more than the norm, a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, about 100x a, a to, to what's in, in Velodyne and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think <coughs> people are looking at, at um, having these things basically uh, trying to put a laser at every pixel. And so, you know, maybe at some point, you know, somebody puts one out that has a million lasers in there. I don't think that that's, you know, that's sort of way out there. Uh, the issue that I think the laser folks are going to continue to face um, is, that, is that if you compare that to a camera, and uh, what you can put with a CCD chip in terms of collecting information, and then uh, the processing power that, that you can put uh, in, in, in the image processing, whether or not um, a laser, in other words, measuring the distance to an object directly um, at the pixel level is actually, uh, is actually uh, uh, financially um, from a cost performance basis better than using a camera. That's going to be the battle, and it's going to continue to be the battle. And um, and as as I see it now, uh, you know the the image processing folks are winning. And um,
0: well, they've got Elon yeah. Musk on board, and uh, Randall, and, you started out talking about Subaru and, and their cameras, so
1: yeah, you know, and and that's Mobileye and so on. Um, yeah, they're so th- that's <coughs> that's the competition that's out there, and uh, we just sit back and watch see what innovation does for us.
2: As you know, the original LIDARs that were made for cars were costing something like $85,000 and cost is coming down really fast. Uh, So I've always said that when somebody finally gets a uh, true driverless car that they can sell to the public, it's only going to add a few hundred, maybe a $1,000 in total to the cost of that car compared with cars that are made today. I mean, my uh, uh, minivan with adaptive cruise control already has, in addition to the radar, it's got a dozen other sensors on it that sense what's happening uh, with a 300 degree view around the, the car. And there's a lot of cars being made like this. So adding driverless capability to cars like this might mean adding a LIDAR It certainly means adding some processing power, but most of the other electronics are already built in, so it's not going to make it a lot more expensive. It's going to be very affordable.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, You know, the other example is, uh, in the beginning, uh, a GPS receiver was $80,000 also. Uh, What's the cost of materials for the GPS receiver in your iPhone right now? I mean, what is it, 80 cents or something like that? I mean, it's just, it's it's, uh, Moore's law. (laughs) I don't know if there's anything better than Moore's law that we've had over the past, uh, you know, 50 years or whatever. And it seems, To be going continuing to go you know where where the performance of these products uh software and and processing and hardware you know doubles every two years and the price drops in half and you know uh, having those kinds of exponentials working for us and they seem to be continuing i think uh, leads uh, to you know a very bright future for all this at least that's the way i see it
0: And finally, Alan Forbes has a piece about Ford using simulations to prepare autonomous vehicles for the road. And you kind of say, what's new here?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, uh, people have been using simulations forever. Guess what they're doing with a, with a seven thirty seven Max Eight. You know, they're 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 the simulations are key. Simulations are key in in, in pilot training and all that stuff. Yes, of course, absolutely. Um, what was interesting and what we we actually. Uh, uh, pioneered was uh, using simulation uh, and and basically looking at, at training some of these systems uh, using virtual reality and uh, that all fits in with the with the simulation concept. Absolutely, uh, simulation is key here. But the problem with simulations is, guess what? We wrote it, so it has to be constrained with what we know. Uh, the reason why you have to go out there and and actually put this thing on public streets and and put it out there is we don't know what we don't know. And the only way we're going to you know, learn what we don't know is unfortunately a trip over it. And when we trip over it, we have to make sure that I, I argue that we have to make sure we tell everybody and we have everybody fix it and fix it as soon as possible. You know, in some sense as they're doing with the max uh, with the max eight and uh, get it back out there and, um, and let's uh, continue to provide uh, value to, uh, Uh, to the consuming public.
0: And uh, on that note, it's time to park this edition thanks to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO, and more information is available at MOTOETF.com. We want to thank Randall O'Toole for, for joining us. Randall, where can people
2: follow your work? Well, they can find me at cato.org since I work for the Cato Institute, but I also have my own website. It's called the AntiPlanner. It's ti.org slash antiplanner, but if you forget that, just Google antiplanner, and I'm the first thing on the list. Randall, it's
1: great having you join us today. It's a real pleasure and a real honor for us to have you.
2: Well, it's good to talk to you. I've been reading your work for a long time and uh, find it very enlightening.
1: Yeah, I mean, all we're trying to do is uh, get people to think, right, Randall?
2: That's right. You know, when I first brought up driverless cars in 2009, people at Cato thought I was nuts. And then uh, (laughs) Google brought a driverless car to uh, Washington, D.C. and invited some of Cato's executives to drive in it. And uh, they were very apologetic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can find us at SmartDrivingCar.com, also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. Your smart speaker can play us, too. You can find my tech reports at Textination.com. Alan, it sounds like you're getting a bit of a bark in your voice.
2: Uh, Me, (laughs) that's 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 my family. That's your (laughs) family. Well, well,
1: he he thought it might be my my dog Peggy, Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, this has been wonderful. And uh, Randall, again, thank you for joining us. And you know, let's keep uh, hashing this out. Look, uh, uh, neither of us can see the future any better than anybody else, but at least uh, you know we're trying to stir some discussion and get everybody to really try to think and ask the right questions.
0: Great stuff. All right, I'm looking forward to it. I'm Fred Fishkin along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening.